right, all you beautiful people, why don't you have a seat? And you can grab your notebooks and pens and Bibles. This is the first uh, gathering we've had in about a month where we're going to be able to spend some serious time in the Word, get back to our Bibles a bit. How many of you love your Bible? That's good. You can tell that we're not Pentecostal because when I ask a question like that, nobody yells amen. Everybody just raises their hands silently. Pretty funny. Hey, you can open up to Isaiah 52, verse 13. On a regular schedule, new surveys come out in the Christian blogosphere, on the Christian websites, asking really good survey questions of non believers. Time and time again, what ranges all the way to the top, sometimes it's not in the top, uh, it's not the, the top most, but it's in the top, is the question why does evil exist? Why does evil exist? It's called the problem of evil. And it goes something like this. If God is loving, why does he allow evil to take place? It comes from a number of theological roots that we don't have time to dig into this morning. But it is a valid question from non-believers. And one that we shouldn't look past. Now let's switch from non-believers to Christians. This question morphs slightly with us as Christians into this. Lord, where are you in the midst of all this evil? You see, we never disagree that evil exists. We know as Christians reading our Bible that evil will be defeated. But at the same time, we wonder, God, why are you taking so long to defeat evil? For those of us who are followers of Christ, we look at the world around us and we ask a question that is echoed throughout Scripture, how long, O Lord? How long? Do any of you ever ponder that question? Raise your hand if you ponder that question. You look at the world, even a cursory glance of the news, the older I get, the less I want to watch the news. I don't watch it anyway, I I look at it online, but the less I even want to go there because, man, It is just all terrible. And I ask the question, how long, O Lord? Like seriously, can it get much worse? If you look at history, though, you understand that it's continued like this from the get-go. Crusades, all the world wars, the infighting between tribes, rape, pillaging, abuse, slavery. It's always been that way. It's not getting necessarily any worse. It's simply getting visible because we have the means to see it. And what I believe our text this morning will show us is that inaction of a sovereign God is actually the furthest thing from the truth. To ask that question, God, why aren't you doing something, is to miss the point of the Bible. It's to act as if this book in front of us never existed. You see, when we think of all the potential solutions that we have as humans to the problem of evil, you have to admit that all of our solutions simply minimize or try and hold off evil. There is no solution that we as humans have come up with that actually destroys and conquers evil because evil is really found in our own core, our own being. And so God's plan of action against evil that we have in front of us, this whole book, not only conquers evil, but it has the power to take what was broken because of evil and heal it and make it whole. This is the power of God's plan. It has the power to restore. How did God deal with evil? And how is he dealing with evil? By sacrificing everything. There is no such thing as inaction on our God's part. How has he dealt with evil? By sacrificing everything. But in order to understand what we're going to read today, we have to pull back a little bit to understand the context of Isaiah 52 and 53. So let's back up all the way to the character of God. There's always a good place to start when we're trying to figure out what a text says is the character of God. Now, would you agree with me that God is holy? Yes or no? God is righteous, yes or no? God is just, yes or no? Within him is no injustice, no immorality, no unrighteousness. And as we've discussed many times in Isaiah, he acted within his perfect character to create a world that would reflect him. And he placed in that world humanity as sub-regents. 
that would rule and reign under his ultimate authority on this earth. And he commissioned all of us as humans. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's another way of saying, make my authority happen all over the world. Now, question for you, question and answer time. Did that go according to plan, yes or no? No, it did not. In the midst of the temptation of the Garden of Eden, Eve decided to trust herself instead of God and usurp his position of authority by defining what was good and evil for herself. Which, coincidentally, that's what we do every time we sin. We usurp the throne of God to decide what is good and what is evil based on our own feelings and our perceptions, not according to his will, his wisdom, and his word. And so at this point, mankind was finished, headed for destruction, separated from life, an eternity divided from God. And we began creating gods in our own image and worshiping them, something we still do today, allowing ourselves freedom to live however we choose. But let's zoom in a little bit closer to our text today. From these idolaters, of which we are a part, God called one man to leave his family, to leave his country, his kindred, his religion, to go and establish a new people. Who was that guy? Anybody remember? Abram. Yeah, Abraham. He was called out to go establish the Israelites. And Israel was given a commission to be a light to the nations. They were to be a beacon reflecting God's glory in a dark world. Anyone, anywhere could come to Israel. They could take on the covenant uh, ability that the Israelites had to be part of the covenant community of God. They had to simply act within that covenant. And so God was supposed to be the Israelites' king. And they were supposed to operate in a religious and sacrificial system that allowed themselves to purify themselves when sin emerged and stay in close proximity to their creator God. This was the commission. This was the plan. But again, did this happen as it was supposed to? Yes or no? Within a few generations, Israel called for their own human king. They began to use the system of sacrifice to feign closeness with God, to pretend it existed, all the while using that same sacrificial system as a cover-up for their own sin, for their own injustice, their greed, their apathy, and their laziness. In essence, they were using their relationship with God to support their own kingdoms and comfort, rather than serve his mission, his kingdom, and his will. His mission was to be a beacon of justice and righteousness to the nations. But instead of doing that, the Israelites chose to be just like the other nations. Give us a king just like the other nations. Give us a God just like the other nations. A God created in their own image to their own liking. And this, zooming in even further, is what Isaiah was called to come on the scene to talk about. He was called to preach to them this truth that they were not acting as God had commissioned them to. They were acting in their own injustice and unrighteousness to build their own kingdoms. Let's take a look here at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. This is what he says right off the bat. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. And this is a name he gives to Jerusalem. Okay? Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. I wonder how many people in the Christian church, maybe many of us here today, God would say this to us. Enough with you going to the table of communion and using the symbol of God's sacrifice on the cross. I've had enough of your communion. I've had enough of your tithes and offerings. Enough of your feigned love of me. Because what did he want? He wanted that relationship to breed something in the life of the people. He says just a few verses later, so wash yourselves. In other words, use the sacrifice to do what it's meant to do, to make you purified to be on mission for that same God. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This wasn't just some social justice verse tossed in for good measure. 
This is what God's people are to be. Not only purified by the sacrifice, but then used by God to effect change in the world in a massive, massive way. But if we zoom in even closer, we understand that Isaiah was calling them to this because if they didn't do this, God in his loving discipline was going to send them into exile to shock them and wake them up. And they went. Rather than hearing the words of the prophet, they decided to continue in their way. I heard a great quote the other day in class. The job of a prophet is to expect that their words are never listened to. That's the truth. And so in Isaiah 40 and 41, we're at that place where they've been in exile and they're broken because of it. They finally realize that something is wrong. And so in Isaiah 41, God steps in in love, recognizing that his movement into exile was not for punishment, but for training them back to the truth. And he says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God was going to act. He wasn't done with Israel. He was going to act in a way that would give them these truths, these promises. This righteous right hand of God was about to be revealed. Remember that God has no form. He is spirit. And so this is what's called an anthropomorphism. It's taking God and turning him into the picture of a man so that we can understand that he's about to move. He's about to act. He's about to use his righteous right hand metaphorically. What is this righteous right hand? Well, as we've been covering over the last few months, this is the servant of Isaiah. And we've covered three of the four servant songs in which the right hand, the arm of God, will act. He will act to fulfill the mission that Israel could not, and he would do much more. The three previous songs speak to that servant's obedience and his action. But we get to the last servant song that we covered almost like a month ago now, and we see this odd thing happening, that in the midst of being obedient, it's actually suffering that brings about the completion of the servant's mission. This was Isaiah 50, verse 5 through 7. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And this shows us that his action of salvation that the Jews were looking for is something that would occur in the midst of this odd beating and oppression. What was he talking about? And this sets the stage for the last servant song that we will cover today. Let's look at Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, and this is the first thing that we're going to see. The servant will inaugurate a victorious kingdom and purify his people. The servant will inaugurate a victorious kingdom and purify his people. Let's read. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall uh, shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. In that last servant song from Isaiah 50, the servant was speaking in first person. He was using I, I, I. But here the servant is being spoken of in the third person. Both God himself and the community of people that are the citizens of his kingdom, those redeemed, are going to speak throughout this servant's song. And they will speak of his suffering to describe how it will fulfill God's plan and promise of restoration. And right from the beginning we see that he will be lifted up. I've submitted to you many times in Isaiah that we as Western Christians have no problem saying Jesus is our Savior, right? Because that's true. 
If that were not truth, we'd be in trouble. But I would also submit to you that we as Western Christians, especially Americans, have a very hard time. We do it in songs. But to truly believe and act as if Jesus is our king and our authority, that's tough for us. We are a democracy where I am the king of my own castles. Castle. Castles? Maybe I want multiple houses. I don't know. We have a hard time submitting to the king. And right from the beginning, God says, my servant, he will be high and lifted up and be exalted. But intertwined with this enthronement is a statement that he'll also be marred to the point that we won't recognize him. This is not how we think. I mean, think about when the next king of Britain stands up and gets enthroned, right? Uh, He doesn't have to go through fight club in order to get through the throne. He doesn't have to be beaten up in order to get to the throne. In fact, everybody stands back from him in, in awe. How could this king who's enthroned be marred? At the point of his exaltation, the servant would also be suffering a physical beating to such a point that those who knew him would not recognize him as human. You see, Jesus didn't have to wait for the ascension into heaven and then the enthronement. His enthronement occurred at the exact same time that his beating was happening. By his very activity of being obedient even to death, in the midst of that, God was saying, you are victorious. You are exalted. Through this beating, his blood would be given to cleanse the nations. Notice the word there, sprinkling. So he shall sprinkle many nations. This is an image that comes from the high priest that would sprinkle the tabernacle, the tent, and all of the implements inside and would cleanse and purify the people. Because they were impure, they could not enter into worship with God. And so the sprinkling was for cleansing so that they could step into the presence of God. How did God deal with evil? We start to see the picture here. He sacrificed everything. To become rightful king of the universe, a universe in which we had rebelled and given away his crown to the enemy and to ourselves, God knew that the only loving way and just way to step in and deal with that evil was not by force the first time, but by sacrificing everything. And through this, these kings that are brought to submission and their nations cleansed, they would see and hear something that had not yet been preached to them. You see, the gospel as we know it today had not gone out yet. Sure, the Israelites were in the center of the world trying to be a beacon, but the gospel had not fully gone out to the nations. And so this servant was the first to bring the full story of God's good news to earth. Turn back to Isaiah 52 with me and look at verse 7. Speaking of this same servant, it says in verse 7 of chapter 52, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, what's the good news? Your God reigns. How badly we in the Western church want to turn that phrase into, you are saved and when you die, you'll go to heaven. See, the gospel is your God reigns. And because of that, as we'll see as we go through 53, it makes a huge impact on us. And so these kings of the world that had been purified by sprinkling, that had taken on because of his marring and his beating, they had been sprinkled by his blood and purified. They would see something that they'd never been told. And I think immediately of the centurion standing to the side of the cross, seeing Jesus, the darkness descend, the earthquake, and he yells out as he sees Jesus give up his spirit, truly, this was the Son of God. That's shorthand, for this was the one prophesied in Daniel, the one prophesied in Isaiah, the suffering servant that these Jews talk about. And back in Isaiah, the community of the redeemed will agree to the fact that this marring actually kept them from seeing his majesty. Let's look at Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them, before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised 
He was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The answer to those top two questions there, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? Who has believed? The answer is nobody. The arm has been revealed to everyone, but no one believed. Why? Because there was nothing about Jesus that made him majestic. Guys, I want you to take this and apply it to every image of Jesus you've ever seen, right? The one where he's like this on the mountain, kind of like, what's her name from Titanic, right? You guys have seen that, right? And his hair is flowing in the wind and he looks like a surfer, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Or the ones where he's like about my size, six foot ten, and he's like intimidating and powerful, right? Apply that to this. At one point, they wanted to stone him, and all they did was reach down to pick up the stones, and he disappeared into the crowd, and it was so quick that they lost him. And everybody goes, oh, that was the Holy Spirit. No, it's because he looked like everybody else. Jesus was literally, and I do not mean this in disrespect, he was Joe Schmo. Because he wanted to identify with the common man. He wanted to identify with every single one of us that feel like the person lost in the crowd that feel like the person that no one notices, that feel like the person who's marred beyond belief so that people turn their face from us. Jesus wanted to truly incarnate into the life of his people. Because there was nothing about him that made him majestic, we turned away. He was so opposite our idea of a king that we despised him, rejected him, and turned away from him. Think of this. This is God. When presented with the majesty of God himself, we, mankind, rejected it. Would I have been any different if I were standing there? Why did they reject it? Because it was not what they thought it should look like. How often God moves in my life. He builds me through brokenness and suffering. His glory is being displayed, but I hold it at a distance and turn my face because it's not what I think it should look like. It doesn't make sense or it's just plain old uncomfortable. That can't be the glory and spirit of God. That's uncomfortable. What do you think he was thinking of on the cross? The reality is, is they turned away from him because it was the very plan of God. The servant of God, the one that we know as Jesus, is more acquainted with sadness and sorrow and rejection than any human being that has ever lived. I get worried about us as Christians because we move from one end of the spectrum to the other. Either you're dour and dire and sad all the time because the world is so bad. Hi, I'm a Christian. My name is Eeyore. (laughs) Or we move to the other side and it's positive encouraging all the time and church should always be encouraging. Oh, there's no conviction. That would be sad. No, guys, the reality is it's in the dead center middle. We carry the burdens and sorrows of the world around us, of the injustice we see. To put on the happy grin at church and to dismiss the injustice that is in our very town and city and region and world is illogical. But to not walk in the joy of the conquering king is also illogical. When we are called followers of Jesus, this is what we're supposed to be. To take on the burdens and sorrows and griefs of those around us. But when we were supposed to follow him, we shunned him. When we were supposed to move toward him in allegiance, we pulled away. What must have that been like for Jesus? To carry that kind of betrayal. In this way, it was not his own sorrow that he carried, but it was ours, our betrayal that he carried. He was not a sad person just because, but he was sad because he took on and carried our sorrows, that which we caused. This is what it means to be a Christian and carry the burdens of one another. Paul said it well. He said, bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we doing that? But then Isaiah continues and gives us the amazing outcome of this sacrificial act of bearing our rebellion. 
Take a look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's the next thing you can write down if you're taking notes. By taking injustice upon himself, God proved to be both just and loving. By taking injustice upon himself, God proved to be both just and loving. In this act of sacrifice, the innocent, righteous, obedient servant takes the place of the guilty, the unrighteous, and the disobedient. In fancy theological terms, this is called the substitutionary atonement. As our substitute, the servant atones or pays for our sins and brings us into reconciliation with our Creator God. And as He carried our sins on the cross, we as mankind, there in verse 4, the end of verse 4, we looked at Jesus and believed that He was cursed by God. Yahweh was beating up on His Son for us. But if you think about it, this is not too far off of how many Christians wrongly view the atonement. The authoritarian father forcing his wrath on the compassionate son, Jesus. Father equals bad. Compassionate son equals good. I hear so many Christians view the atonement in this way. This is why we love Jesus. That, yeah, we're, I know it's to get us to the father, but that, he's kind of authoritarian. But remember that the arm of the Lord is an extension of Yahweh himself. And what the Bible actually teaches is that the Holy Spirit empowered the Son to act in the role of the divine servant, fulfilling the plan initiated by who? The Father. All three voluntarily took it on together. Think with me of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Why don't you turn to Genesis 22? Genesis 22, it's a beautiful picture that captures what Jesus would go through and the Father's part in it. Jesus pictured as Isaac, the Father pictured by Abraham. Chapter 22 of Genesis verse 1, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his uh, son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Notice Abraham's constant refrain. Yes, God, here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. Now when you look at this in the Hebrew, he's speaking future tense. The ram had already been caught and used, and yet he still calls the mountain in the future. The Lord will provide. This is Abrahamic righteousness. This is him looking for God to provide some solution to the problem of evil. It's the same exact salvation that we have looking backwards to the truth of Jesus. He just didn't know his name would be Jesus. Now, getting into this picture here, many picture Isaac to be a boy, but tradition states that even though our English says boy there, Isaac was most likely my age. I'm 38. He was about 37. Josephus, a historian, backs it off a bit and states that he was 25. And you look at the story and that makes sense because what little boy could carry enough wood up a mountain in order to burn an entire body? And secondly, when you look at it, how old was Abraham? He was at least 80, if not over 100. So you got a 100-year-old dude and his 37-year-old son. Who do you think is going to win in an arm wrestling war? So what does this mean? He bound Isaac with rope. Isaac had to volunteer. Isaac had to have just as much obedience to the Creator God as Abraham did. And for some reason, he trusted in a God he didn't understand. It's faith. This is the picture of Jesus and the Father. It is the wrath of both the Father and the Son taken out on the Son that occurred on the cross. In Revelation 6, it tells us that all the sinners of the world will cry out and say, rocks fall on us. Why? To keep us from the wrath of both the one seated on the throne, the Father, and of the Lamb. The Father and the Son empowered by the Spirit, cooperated to take part in the sacrifice that brings about wholeness and healing. And this is what the gospel brings us if we allow it. It tells us of a compassionate, loving Father who gave everything He had to draw you to Himself. If only we could grasp this as Christians. So much of the brokenness I see as a pastor is because we have forgotten the depth and the goriness and the bloodshed of the gospel. We've forgotten what it took to truly affect forgiveness and purity. In effect, what we've done is we've sanitized the gospel. Well, Jesus said, he died for my sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we stopped looking on the cross and seeing the bloodshed that had to take place. We stop thinking about the heart of a father sacrificing his only son. And in so doing, what we do is we sanitize sin. I would submit to you that the reason we as Christians are so comfortable acting in blatant known sin is because we've sanitized sin because we've also sanitized what the price was. And if we really sit in the bloodiness and the gore of what it took to bring us healing, we won't sanitize sin any longer. We won't sanitize sin that we have done and continue in it. We also won't sanitize sin that was done to us. When I sit with true trauma victims and I counsel them through their trauma, I am shocked that the most amazing and helpful thing for them is to see the justice of what it took to pay for the sin that was done to them. Someone who's been abused by their parent or molested by a relative, they go their entire lives thinking that the right Christian thing to do is to forgive and forget and move past. That's what Christians are supposed to do. Forgive and forget. Jesus didn't forgive and forget. He shed his blood. And so what we are called to do is to actually step into this section of Isaiah that says, by his wounds we are healed. There's not healing and forgiving and forgetting. 
There's healing in taking that sin that you have done or that was done to you to the cross and realizing justice was poured out for that. Someone had to die. And what that does is that values the sin that was done to us. And that trauma victim all of a sudden feels valued for the first time in their life. That God loved them so much that he saw what was done and he initiated the plan to pay for it. I want so badly for this to happen in the lives of so many of you. So many of you walk in this sanitized version of forgive and forget and move on with life and you're still trying. This is why you walk in shame underneath the Father. You think he's the authoritarian God that was angry that he had to pour out his wrath on his sin just to get you into heaven. No, he chose to do it because he loves you so dearly. He chose to pay that price to bring you into his kingdom. I want you to deal with the brokenness in your lives and in your family systems. I want you to stop walking around saying, my parents treated me terribly, but I know they loved me. You have just ill-defined love. And you have minimized the cross. Speak truth about what the sin was you have done. Speak truth about what the sin was that has been done to you. Stop glossing over it and sanitizing it. And in so doing, you will let the gospel actually do its work. It will free you from the brokenness. How did God deal with the evil that you have done and I have done and that has been done to us? By sacrificing everything. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. By his wounds we are healed. He was pierced for us. He's brought us peace through these things. How did he do it? Let's look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. The servant suffered innocently. He had done no violence, spoken no deceit. The author of Hebrews speaks of Jesus as the one who is in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And just as the servant here is pictured as being led as a lamb to the slaughter, killed unjust, uh, in an unjust fashion, and buried, Jesus endured the same thing. He was hung between two wicked criminals. He alone was innocent. He was crucified in the most torturous manner of death of the day. We think that it was painful for the nails to go through. It absolutely was. But what he died from was the constant suffocation that he was enduring as he heaved on the cross, trying to grasp his last breath. Bleeding out slowly from all the wounds he'd incurred prior to the cross. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man among the Sanhedrin. And in all of this, the compassionate, loving father initiated the plan to send his compassionate, loving son, who was empowered by the Holy Spirit, all volunteering for the mission to take on injustice so that justice and love could be done. How true is that old hymn, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. But the work of God only begins here. It continues on. Remember, I used that word inaugurated. The enthronement has begun. The work has begun. The, the gospel has started to go out. This next section in Isaiah 53 tells us this. This is the last big point you can write down. From the servant's death comes his offspring, a kingdom of servants. From the servant's death comes his offspring, a kingdom of servants. I never want you to walk away from any teaching that I give without understanding the gracious, 
gospel message that Jesus died for your sins to draw you to himself. But I also am not doing my job if I do not impress upon you the fact that that must change your life. It must change your life. And this change will come in incremental fashion as you grow in your knowledge of what Jesus did the plan of God and what he requires of you. But our job is to chase that with incredible passion. Not to sit back and go, oh, good thing I'm saved. I'll just enjoy life while I got got it. And then when I die, I'll go to heaven and then the work will begin. No, he died to save us and send us. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord, this is Yahweh, shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, that's us, to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Remember how we started this section in Isaiah 52. The work of the servant would both initiate a kingly reign, that's the exaltation, and it would bring purification for the citizens of the kingdom, that's the sprinkling that we covered. Uh, A theologian named Andrew Abernathy speaks in his commentary of Isaiah about what this sprinkling of blood was and how it was only ever done for one reason, to purify a person which was impure so that they can now relate to a holy God in his holy community, in his holy place. Through the servant's act of suffering and death, he purifies those who accept his sacrifice and submit to his kingship through allegiance to him alone. This is our response to the gospel. To accept what he has done, to say, I accept that you died for my sins. Forgive me, God, a sinner. And to then submit to his kingship through allegiance to him alone, growing every day in your knowledge of what that requires. The Gospels teach us that Jesus bore our sins on the cross, resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven to be enthroned as king, and there he waits, not twiddling his thumbs, not watching the latest game, interceding, working, waiting for the day of his return. And this is why his reign is inaugurated. He sits as much as king of your life today as he will when he is physically in front of you in the future. It has begun, but it is not yet finalized. John, in his book of Revelation, perfectly captures this vision. Turn with me to Revelation 5. Last book of the Bible, Revelation 5. One day when I teach through Revelation, you guys will see that I do not believe that Revelation is a chronological series of events. I do not agree with the idea that it comes out of the Left Behind series, and that's where you should get your theology. I do agree that it is used as a lot of symbolism, stating truth that will occur, and truth that covers the entire period of time from the exaltation of Jesus on the cross, all the way until he comes back. And in chapter 5, we get this imagery of what the throne room of heaven is like. In chapter 4, he says, I want to show you from my eyes. That's when he says, come up here. And he shows him the throne room. He's trying to show him from God's eyes how God sees the world as it exists today. Not in the future. Today. So what you're about to read is a scene that is occurring right now. You got me? Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The scroll that he holds is the plan of God. It is what will roll out in order to redeem and restore mankind. And his right hand is holding it saying, who is my servant that will accomplish this? And John sees it and goes, there's nobody to do it. We're all too impure. We can't accomplish the cost that is required for sin. But one of the elders said to me, verse 5, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, guys, what is a lion in the midst of the jungle? King. The root of David. In other words, he's David's offspring, the promise to David that there will be a king that will reign. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now picture this. John is standing there hearing this and seeing this, and the elder says to him, hey, look over there. Look at this lion. And John turns. And what does he see? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is pulling tons of imagery from Isaiah the seven spirits of Jesus that will lay on him from Isaiah 11. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He accepted the commission. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. The only time you ever write a new song in ancient Near East literature is when you have conquered an army and you're about to have a party. Think of Exodus when they walked through the Red Sea and they came out the other side and the army was destroyed and Moses and Miriam erupt in a new song of victory. What is that song? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. and By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them, you have made them, it's already occurred, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This should be playing in our minds when we go to take communion. This should be playing in our minds when we give of the wealth he's given to us because he is worthy of our wealth. This should be playing in our minds when we sing and raise our hands because he is worthy of our blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Can I get an amen? amen. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. John sees the Ancient of Days, Yahweh himself holding this plan, asking who's worthy. The elders point to the lion and John turns and what he sees is a lamb. A lamb that had been slain as the perfect sacrifice that ransoms a people of every tribe and nation. And those that are ransomed by this sacrifice are a kingdom of priests reigning and serving in the image of the lion and the lamb. We reflect both the conquering of the lion and the sacrifice of the lamb. How did God deal with evil? by sacrificing everything. And while all this is to come in fullness one day when Christ returns, it began at the cross and it continues right now. When you walk into your place of work tomorrow, when you go to your school starting in the fall, when you come to your neighborhood, when you run a meeting in your home to tell people about the gospel, you are operating as an ambassador of the King Most High. 
You are not at your jobs to earn a paycheck. You are at your jobs to be an ambassador of the kingdom. You do not earn money in order to make your kingdom great. You earn money to let the justice of God be known. Everything about our lives should be on the altar of Jesus Christ. Hans, that means that you're asking too much. What if Jesus had said that on the cross? See, the gospel is not Jesus died so I don't have to. The gospel is Jesus died so you could be reconciled to him so that you could perfectly reflect him living a life of sacrifice. Those that are ransomed here in Revelation are the same as those that are given to the servant in Isaiah 53. It's us. We are his offspring. Go back with me to Isaiah there and look at Isaiah 53, verse 12. A number of Hebrew scholars translate this differently from what it says in the ESV. I looked it up yesterday and it makes sense to me, but I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I just know enough to be dangerous. This is how they translate that first line of verse 12. I will apportion to him, the servant, the many. And the strong, he will be apportioned as spoil. You see, when a king conquered, he would take all of the people he conquered and he would bring them in a victorious parade through the city. Revelation says that one day Jesus will appear in the clouds and he will have the armies of heaven with him. That will be us. And he will ride through the city of the world, conquering, showing that he has ransomed us. We are his servants. And nine times in the rest of Isaiah, you will see no longer speaking of the servant because his work has been inaugurated. You will see us as his servants, meant to lay down our lives, endure suffering, and reflect the character of the Father to the world around us, just as Jesus did for us. Guys, the notion that we can just kind of flaunt, uh, go through the world and be nice to people and you know, hopefully they ask us the gospel and then we can say Jesus has a purpose and a plan for you and when you die, you go to heaven if you say a simple prayer. Guys, that is not this book. It's not this book. This book says God loved us enough to sacrifice everything. What is your response? For us, as Gentiles, we shouldn't have ever been chosen. For Jews, this is a promise to restoration, to a position of intimacy with Yahweh. For us as Gentiles, this is a promise that his free gift of salvation extends to us, the ones that never should have gotten it. And I want to say to anyone in here today that has never accepted this gift and this offering of Jesus, You've never accepted his atoning sacrifice. You've never asked to be admitted into his kingdom. You can do so right now where you sit. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to repeat a prayer after me. You simply need to say, God, forgive me, a sinner. I need you. You can do that today. You can do it tomorrow. But I would say don't wait. You can step into his grace by faith and begin the walk as a citizen in his kingdom. It can happen right now. And it should happen right now because he gave everything. For those of us that desire to walk in that kingdom, though, we must understand what we are taking on. Jesus referred to this as counting the cost of following him. Last place I'll turn you, go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, Luke 14, 25. And they turned and said to him, or he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. I want you to read those next words. Say it again. It's 
So if I were to give you a gospel that said Jesus died so you don't have to, go ahead and live your lives the way you want to, what would that make me? A liar. A false prophet. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. What's it say? For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce, what's that next word? Any of you who does not renounce what? That he has. I would have written this way different. Wouldn't you? I would have written it so a lot more people like me. I would have written it so it's a lot easier to teach on a Sunday morning. I would have written it with tons of loopholes that I myself could have jumped through. He's pretty clear. Apathy has no place in the kingdom. You see, when we profess Jesus as Lord, King, and Savior, we are accepting his free gift of grace, but we are also answering his commission. There is no work, there is no sacrifice that we can do to save ourselves. But his sacrifice requires a response. Not just a decision, a response with your life. Just as Jesus entered into this world taking on suffering, yet trusting God's power to bring him through it victorious, we too are asked to enter into warfare against sin and death and hell and injustice. Are you ready? Are you up for the task? I believe that anyone in here who is answering no right now is hearing from the enemy. It simply takes a choice. How do we assist God in dealing with evil? By sacrificing everything. We are promised we will be victorious. In Isaiah, it says this, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you, my servants, shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me. But we are also promised that if we follow him, we will endure suffering and injustice just as he did so that we can bring the good news of God's gospel and justice to the world around us. And so Isaiah also says, in just a couple of chapters away from chapter 53, thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath. In other words, Sundays are the most important thing in their life and does not profane it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. I just want to take a second and I want to say to some of you in here, well done. This week has been a hard week for a couple of our congregants that have been in the hospital encountering stuff that, man, I don't know that I could go through. And some of you in here have laid down your life, your time, your talents, your treasure to care for those people. Well done. I got the chance to watch our church love my brother and sister, our brother and sister. I'm kind of partial to them. Marcel and Pauline last week. I saw some of you write giant checks that I know was a sacrifice. And because of that, hundreds will come to the knowledge of the Savior in the midst of Burkina Faso. Well done, those of you that have sacrificed. I see many of you get up early to come and sit up and stay late to tear down on a day that is your day off. Well done. I see many of you giving up your life day in and day out to serve. Not asking what you get in return not figuring out how it's just enough to get into heaven, but serving because you know that you're already part of the kingdom. Well done. For the rest of you, I want that same blessing for you. 
but you're holding on to something so tight that you're keeping yourself from moving in that place. We are to be a people in his image that take on his fight against sin, brokenness, death, oppression, hunger, and injustice. Some of you in this room lay down your life to serve as foster parents. Well done. Some of you serve as people that give them a rest. Well done. Ask yourself, where has God gifted me to step out and sacrifice? We are to be a people in his image that takes on his fight against sin, brokenness, death, oppression, hunger, and injustice, all the while knowing that his inaugurated reign will one day become his full reign, and we will continue on with him as his people. Until then, we must be about his business. How do we do that? Four things, and then I'm actually done. First, accept the gospel. Again, if you are a person in here that hasn't chosen to say, yes, that sacrifice in Isaiah 53, that was done for me. That lamb who was slain, he was slain for me because of my sin. He died in my place. You need to accept the gospel today. Accept it. Walk in it. Proclaim it. Secondly, for many of us in here, we need to be reminded of the gospel. We've sanitized it, as I said earlier, and yeah, I'm going to heaven, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, and we kind of say it as if it's like, you know, I'll take a Big Mac and fries. It's nothing to us anymore. We need to meditate on the purification that occurred and engage in the process of dealing with our own sin. Guys, do not wait for one day the Holy Spirit to suddenly change you. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit Stop ignoring the brokenness in your own hearts and lives and minds and step into pastoral care to start working on those things. Call our office. Ask one of us as elders to start assisting you in walking through that brokenness. Talk to somebody. It's holding you back from walking in the midst of the kingdom in an amazing way. So many of you are playing with your own sin or you're carrying wounds from others' sin against you that they keep you from entrusting yourself to God and laying down your life to fully serve him. This week, I would beg of you to be reminded of the gospel, meditate on it, and seek out that which keeps you from walking in the freedom of sin, freedom from sin. Third, be empowered by the gospel. Meditate on the victory that was won. Read over these verses again. We should be fearful of nothing ready to take on all suffering that the world might throw at us. And we can say in the face of suffering and death, bring it. The Messiah, he has given me my commission and no one can take it from me. He has drafted me into battle and I will not be brought down. I will set my face like flint against anyone that comes against his kingdom. And I may suffer but I will rise victorious. That is the rally cry every one of us have. We must be empowered by the gospel. No more fear. Today, can I just say something to you? It's not in my notes. If you walk in fear and anxiety, that is not God's plan. And it is also not your fault. There is something underlying that is broken and you need to deal with so that you can walk in the fearlessness of Jesus Christ. Come talk to me. We'll work on it. Lastly, be commissioned for the gospel. Let's all, not individually go shotgunning into the world, but like a sniper, let's join together to take part in his glorious mission to step into the midst of injustice, to bring down injustice. Don't stand as a bystander holding off at a distance waiting for eternity to come. Step into the battle. Lay down your life for Christ. We are his. Lay down your life for Christ and serve his kingdom instead of your own. And if we can get this, guys, if we can get on the same page on this one, it is going to be amazing. Let me give you an example that I shared with leadership last week. It's $1,000 to roof a church, right? $40,000 would roof 40 churches. 
Do you have that in your pocket? I don't. No, we can't do it. But let's say there's 40 families in here. There's a lot more than that. But let's say every one of those families said, you know what, I'm going to go back to my budget and I'm going to redo my budget and I'm going to pull stuff out. I'm going to make sacrifices so that at the end of the year, I know the next time Marcel shows up, I can give $1,000. And some of you might be college students and you're like, dude, for me, that's like 75, (laughs) right? Well, that's awesome because we got other people who they might be able to give five. So it evens out. But everyone takes on the call as a body not of parts all cut off going and doing their own things, but together as a body moving in sync. And we all choose to sacrifice so that at the end of the year, we can hand Marcel not a check for eking out maybe five roofs, but a check that will eke out 40 roofs and then some. But every one of you in this room has to take on that challenge whether that be for DHS, whether that be for Haiti, whether that be for Burkina, whether that be for caring in the midst of our church, we must each decide that we will sacrifice. Not just in money, but in everything. So that we can truly be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Today, I want you to ask, whose kingdom am I serving? My own or Jesus himself?